Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. In your Bibles, we have a couple of guests here this morning that I want to draw your attention to. They're very special. They uh, like a lot of attention. Um, now you're all wondering, and if you're a guest here, you're really nervous. But I want to draw your attention to two very small uh, little guests that we have with us, um, Jackson and Jordan. And uh, if you're holding one of them, could you please stand? They're here, a couple of twins. So, and there's, yeah, look at those guys. So we're excited about that. Are you all getting any sleep at all? No, not really. Mm. All right, pray for the Davis family. So how's AJ? Is he uh, a good big brother? Kind and giving. I think AJ is going to be able to pull it off. You know, I never had twins to be a big brother to, but I think AJ has got it in him. He'll do a great job. You know, we've been studying in the book of John, the Gospel of John, making our way through this incredible book in the Bible. And uh, of course, here we are. It's the Passover, um, be Thursday night. And, of course, Jesus has been with his disciples in the upper room. Um, he's washed their feet. You remember how we studied that. And, um, of course, they had been bickering with one another, arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus really was teaching them love like this. Stop being so concerned about yourself and uh, where your, your place is going to be in all of this. Uh, love, love like this. He loved sacrificially, loved selflessly. Judas had been identified. We looked at that. And, of course, the disciples were confused. Everything was coming apart around them. Uh, I, I think some of them were discouraged. Uh, some of them were disappointed. I think there was a part of them that was wondering what they had signed up for. This isn't what I signed up for um, our, you know, we've been with you for three years. We know who you are. Why would you leave us? Why would you go away? Why aren't you revealing yourself in all of your glory to the world? And there are all these sorts of questions, questions like you and I have. You know, uh, you were saved many years ago, perhaps, or maybe just recently you were saved. And, and life is not going according to what you thought it was going to go. Uh, there have been some real turns in the road of your life, perhaps, some unexpected events. And much of what the disciples were going through was certainly unexpected. None of this was according to their plan. And of course, Jesus, at the beginning of John 14, had promised them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the purpose is so that we can be together again, so we can be reunited again and be together for all of eternity. And, of course, that's why Jesus Christ came, to save sinners. Of course, Paul talked about that, of whom he said, I am chief. And then Jesus, in the latter part of John chapter 14, we studied this uh, specifically. He told them, while I'm gone, I'm going to send to you a comforter. And, uh, and not just a comforter, not just the Holy Spirit, but Jesus said, I'm going to come again and be with you. And not just me, but my Father as well. And so we have the Godhead 
um, taught in the end of John chapter 14, dwelling within each and every child of God. All that we need. Is there anything that we need that God cannot provide for us? Uh, Sometimes we feel like we're missing something on a given day. Sometimes we feel like we're lacking something. But of course, according to this passage in John 14, we have everything that we need. At the beginning of John chapter 15, Jesus has given them this, um, this beautiful picture of the vine, Jesus, and the husbandmen, God the Father, and the branches would be those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the fruit that the husbandman prunes and he takes away the, the shoots off of the branches that are unproductive and it can be painful to go through, but we all need that. And Jesus taught his disciples this truth. This is what you need to do going forward. In my, as I leave and my spirit comes and I'm with you and dwelling in you and the Father is living within you, And you're going to go through some challenging times. You're going to face some difficult things. But this is what you need to know to go through life and to be productive. And that is you need to abide in me, Jesus said to his disciples. And that truth is true today for you and for me. To abide, to continue in Christ. Don't abandon. Don't walk away. Don't try to find your nourishment or satisfaction or peace or joy or contentment or happiness outside of the vine. Because the vine has everything that you need. Everything that you need. Everything that I need. Now, as Jesus is talking to them about this matter of abiding, this which is absolutely essential for them to succeed in abiding with him, it follows naturally that if our fellowship with Christ is what it ought to be, then our fellowship, our communion with one another, I mean fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, will be what it ought to be as well. And remember, this group of men that Jesus is talking to here was a bit unstable, especially at this point. They're unstable. I mean, they're struggling. They've been arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is going to leave them. He's giving them wonderful truths, but they're things that they're hearing. They're being told, but they've got to take Jesus at his word because nothing has changed. The situation hasn't changed. The the very next day, Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the whole world. They're going to be brokenhearted. This very night, uh, uh, Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. So they are unstable. This is not a stable bunch. This evening as they're walking along. And uh, he knows, Jesus knows, if they continue to operate in their own strength, they're going to stumble. Isn't that true for you and for me as well? We, when we try to go through life, we go through this week and of our own strength, there will be some stumbling. There will be some falling. And Jesus knows that, that about these men. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to give in to your fears and your flesh. You might abandon your first love. So what did they need to know beside abiding within Christ? And and, and really an addendum to that truth, Jesus now teaches them. He really simplifies it further by telling them this. And let's look at our passage, John 15. And I'll begin reading in verse 12. He says this. And I'll read down through verse 17. He says, this is my commandment. I'm going to give you a command, not optional. This is my commandment, he says in verse 12, that ye 
love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Verse 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word this morning. So much going on in our world today, so many things going on in our lives in our hearts, and our minds, decisions being made for your glory, decisions being made that dishonor you, temptations and trials, tests, joys, blessings. And yet, Father, we need, we need to understand your word. So I pray that you would teach us by it this morning, by your Holy Spirit. Help us not just to go through the motions this morning, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and that we would receive and understand and, and live out these, this truth of loving the way you love. And I pray that these truths would reassure our hearts this morning and encourage us and build up our faith. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in verse 12, you might look back there to verse number 12. I noticed that Jesus gives this command to his followers. It was not a new command um, in the sense that he had already spoken it to them. Look back to chapter 13 for just a moment. Chapter 13 and verse 34. Jesus had said this, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as, as I have loved you. That ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. How do your children know that you that you love the Lord Jesus Christ? That um, that you are a follower of His? That you are a learner of of Jesus Christ? I mean, most of us here would say, "I want my children to." to love God. I want my children to know the Lord. I want my children to obey Him and His Word. How do our children know? Uh, well, by the way, we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how our children know that we are lovers of God. That's how they know how they ought to love the Lord. Um, how, what about our, our co-workers? Um, how, how can they know that we are followers of Christ? We have gospel tracts in Iraq in the foyer. You're welcome. They're free. You're welcome to take them. And they're great to give to people neighbors and friends and relatives and co-workers and they're wonderful things to give they have the truth of the gospel within them but that is not how people know that we are followers of the lord jesus christ they know that we are followers of the lord jesus christ by the way we love our fellow brothers and sisters in christ that's how that's how so this wasn't new jesus had taught them this already back in chapter 15 and verse 12 he says it this way, this is my commandment. I'm, he's doubling down. I'm telling you, this is what you must do. What is it? That ye love one another. And the word love there is that word agape, sacrificial. 
that ye love one another as I have loved you. In a sense, already, how I've already loved you, how I've been loving you all along. How I've been comforting and caring for you and teaching you and being faithful to you and forgiving you and being long, suffering long with you. Do you think Jesus had to suffer long with his disciples, yes or no? Yes. Uh, over and over again, we find them correcting him. No, this is what we'll do. This is what we should do. Okay, I guess if you want to do it, we'll do it. I mean, they weren't necessarily, I mean, they were human, right? They were people. They were people, just like you and me. Down in verse number 17, he says, These things I command you. Why? To what end? That ye love one another. I'm telling you how to love one another. I want you to love one another. And, and how is it possible? I might ask this question. How is it possible for Jesus to command us to love one another? Can true love be commanded? Don't answer. Don't move. But think, can true love be commanded? Isn't love something you fall into? Isn't love a feeling, you know, goosebumps? Well, not this kind of love. Not this kind of love. Remember with me that agape is not, the, the love of Christ is not primarily a feeling. But agape love is an act of the will. It is volitional. It is, God has commanded me to love this person. I really don't. But I'm going to anyway. I'm going to love them anyway. Now, in the, our passage that I've already read to you, that we've read together, he's going to show us what it looks like. He's going to give us the elements of this kind of love. He's telling them, I'm, I'm telling you, men, and I know you're brokenhearted. I know you're discouraged. I know you don't feel like loving anybody at this time. I know that you kind of are, are kind of going into the fetal position, the I'm going to save myself mode. And that's what they were going to do. They were going to go hide. Peter's going to deny Jesus. They're, they're scared. I know that you're human. But I'm telling you, I'm giving you a command. If you are going to be my followers, you're going to have to love like I love you. Now, how is that possible? Well, he just taught us this. You need to abide in me. And I will abide in you. He says it three times. So this isn't just a matter of Jesus, who is God, who was God and is God, telling a bunch of frail, fleshly men, love like God. And they can't do it. And he gives them no provision. That's not what's happening here. He has given them a provision. He's saying, abide in me and I in you. But my words abide in you, and I'll abide in you, or you abide in my words, and I'll, my words will abide in you. In a sense, he's saying, abide in my love, and my love will abide in you. It'll take up residence in your life. It will change you into being into my image. You see, the proof of our love is not in, in not in uh, the proof of our love is not in is not found in what we feel, but what we do. Even to the degree of laying down our lives for the Lord and laying down our lives for one another. And, and to what degree, then I might ask, as we consider this command, 
are we, as followers of Christ, to what degree are we to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Look again at verse 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another. And here's the to the degree that we're to love one another. As I have loved you. That's the degree. Do we gather together as believers just because we're commanded, or maybe we don't even know about his commands about gathering together as a church, but do we get together just because that's how we were raised? You know, your parents brought you to church. You bring your kids to church. I mean, my parents brought me to church. I bring my kids to church. and We, we kind of do the church thing when it fits into our schedule, and if it doesn't, then, you know, it, it's okay because we're under grace and not under the law. And, uh, you know, we just kind of fit. Is that why we, is that what, is that where, what we are as a church? Is that all we have? Jesus looks at these men. He says, I want, I'm telling you to love one another. And of course, they were a very unified bunch, weren't they? No, wait, they'd been arguing. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Their moms are even involved in one situation. How can I get my sons to the top with a pecking order in all of this? They weren't. There wasn't a great deal of unity here. I think there was, it's like, you know, what? I don't know, Lord, why you brought him into the group. I mean, I know why you brought me. I know why you brought me here, but why would you bring him? I mean, he's not really. I think there was that within the disciples. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know who you are. I know what you're prone to. I know your fears, but I'm telling you to love one another. And to what degree am I telling you to love one another? I'm telling you to love one another to the degree that I have loved you. And Jesus is establishing a standard by which all real love can be measured as I have loved you. And so the believer who is abiding in Christ will love as Christ loves. This is not an emotional feeling. This is an act of the will. It's treating others the way God treats us. It's being gracious, it's being merciful, it's being kind, it's being pure, it's looking out for one another, it's thinking about one another. He thinks of us, his thoughts toward us are more than can be numbered. It's forgiving one another. You know, this could be a reference to the way Jesus had loved his disciples already, washing their feet, serving them, teaching them. It certainly could be applied to what he was about to do. Verse 13 seems to direct our thoughts that way, though I think it's more of what he has been doing. And if we're going to abide in Christ and his love, Christ and his love is going to abide in us. And that's the truth. And if I'm not abiding in Christ, if I'm not continuing in him and his word, if I'm not saying yes to him and his Holy Spirit, I can guarantee you that I will not love my brothers and sisters the way Christ loves me. I will look out for me. I will do what's best for me. I will put myself above everybody else. And Christ is saying, I am actually telling you to do the opposite of that. So the disciples of Jesus Christ need to love one another like Christ loved them. And by the way, Jesus wasn't telling them to do something that he himself wasn't willing to do. It was something he had already been doing. It was something that, that he, it, he, was, he was telling them to do Really what he was, he is love. They were not. They were selfish, self-absorbed. And he's saying, I want you to love others the way that I have loved you. And I want to consider this love of Christ 
within the passage, as we look at it this morning, there really are four elements of this love. First, I notice there is sacrifice. There is sacrifice. Look at verse number 13, would you? John 15 and verse 13. He says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, our, our love for one another should include sacrifice. Does your love for your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your fellow church members, does it include sacrifice? Or is church a matter of convenience? Oftentimes, if you're a member of a, of a golf club, if you're looking into that golf membership, which I cannot say I've experienced this, but if you were, you would want to know what the perks are. I'm going to pay you, and I want to know what I'm going to get in return, right? If you're involved, if you have a membership, that's what you're... But to be a church member is different than to be a membership of a country club. It's about me. Okay, if God has planted me within this assembly of believers, he has commanded me to love these people for who they are, where they are, no matter what they do, no matter how much I have in common with them, no matter what their age, no matter where they are in life. And there needs to be, there ought to be, within this kind of love that Jesus is commanding us, love like this, there is sacrifice. You know, the highest achievement of human love is when a person is willing to give his life for his friend. That's what Jesus says in that verse. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But the love of God went even further than laying down his life for his friends. Jesus willingly gave his life for his enemies. Romans 5 and verse 8 tells us this, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And not sinners who... We're toying around in sin, but really wished we weren't because we really liked God, but really wanted to please him. But we were kind of caught in enjoying our sin. No, sinners in the sense of we hated God and we wanted to be sinners and we loved our sin. And yes, we were slaves to sin, but we served sin and we willingly served sin and we hated God. We were alien and aliens from God, the Bible says in Ephesians. It's important, I think, to consider that word man. It's. Uh, men who give their lives for their friends, but Jesus gives his, gave his life for his enemies. And Jesus is instructing all of us who are followers of him to love one another sacrificially. We should be willing to give up our lives for one another. Are you willing to give up your life for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Think about that for just a moment. Would you be willing to give up your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Within the military, I imagine within certain regiments or groups of men and women who are serving together, I imagine, and I know it's true, they at times give their lives so that their, their, their uh, fellow officers or 
fellow military men and women can live. In a police department, they, they'll do that. There's a brotherhood. They love one another. To that degree, they'll give up their life for their friend. Within a local church, would you be willing to give up your life for your brother and sister in Christ? Would you be willing to give up some of your pleasures to make sacrifices for them? You see, the believer who is abiding in Christ will have this kind of mindset, the mind of Christ, who is willing to live, leave heaven and to become our sin, to save us from our sin. And, of course, Paul told the church at Philippi, let this mind be in you. Let the mind of Christ, his willingness to sacrifice himself for our salvation, that ought to be the way you think, Paul told the church at Philippi. In 1 John 3 and verse 16, John wrote this. He said, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, he said, Hereby perceive we, we can identify this, uh, that we love God. Hereby perceive we the love of God, he says, because he laid down his life for us. How do we know that God loves us? Well, he gave his life for us. And then he says this, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Some of us might say, well, you know, I'd be willing to die. It meant the, that my brothers and sisters in Christ could live, be willing to physically die to that end. Would we be willing to get, would we be willing to limit ourselves in certain areas of fleshly appeal so that our brothers and sisters in Christ can live? Would we, would we, would we be willing to um, go without some pleasures that we could have? So that our brothers and sisters in Christ can flourish, be strengthened and edified and built up. I know in our, in our culture today, sacrifice is not popular. It's ensure your happiness. Even to the point where be who you want to be. And, they're no, and, and we have seen recently that way of thinking knows no ends. Be who you want to be today. Do what you want to do. Watch what you want to watch. Listen to what you want to listen to. Order your life the way you want to order your life. Don't let anybody stop you from being happy. That's the message of our culture today. And I want you to know that is absolute worldliness it is the opposite of godliness, which we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly gave himself. You see, the believer who is abiding in Christ's love will sacrificially love his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, it's going to cost you something. And it's not just going to be money. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost me something. To be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ, to love my brothers and sisters in Christ more than I love me, more than I love my life, more than I love certain pleasures that I might enjoy, whether they be sinful or not sinful. It's going to cost me something. And it's something, by the way, this is something that all of us need to consider. The command is to every believer, 
But those who will obey this command are the true disciples of the Lord Jesus. What are some what are some ways that we can love one another sacrificially? What do you think? What are some ways that we can love one another sacrificially? Do we need to make a program out of this? Do we need to have a sign-up sheet? Someone can sign up. You know, I'm I want this week I'm going to love the so-and-so family sacrificially. So I'm going to give them every dollar I make for the whole week. Is that what we're talking about here? No. Could be time. Could be time. I think the answer, and I want you to ponder this this week. Am I I loving my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ sacrificially? Am I loving the way Christ has commanded me to love them? I would answer it this way. If we're going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ sacrificially, we have to follow Christ. And I'll answer it this way. We need to deny ourselves. You're going to have to deny yourself. I'm going to have to deny myself. Something I want. And we need to take up our cross daily. And we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny myself what my flesh wants. That means for some of us this week when we are tempted of the evil one and of our flesh to indulge in something that we know is wrong, we say no to self. And as we do that, we are actually loving Christ and we are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by our examples, we encourage one another. Now, for some of us to say no to self is actually, it is to deny self. It, it is almost to deny who we are because it's we've been indulging in it for so long. It's part of who we are. It's how we act. It's how we respond. It's the things we say. It's what we listen to. It's where we go. It's what we watch. It's, it's part of us. You're going to have to choose. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. You have to take up your cross. What's a cross an emblem of? It's an emblem of suffering. It's an emblem of shame. I'm going to have to take up my cross. Do you know? Uh, do you know that each one of us has a cross to bear to a degree? Not the way Jesus had a cross to bear. He went to a cross. He took up a cross to save the whole world from our sins. That's not your responsibility. That's not my responsibility to save the world from our sins to provide a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That's not what God has called you and me to do. But we are commanded to take up our cross. And for some of us in this room, your cross is uh, uh, a disease. It's poor health. It's a cross that you bear. It's not a cross that all of us bear. And and, And as you bear that cross, you You suffer. And your faith is tested and you wonder about the goodness of God and you ponder it. And you wonder why he he allowed this into your life and why he chose you to bear this cross. And then there are temptations that we face. Every one of us face temptations, but the temptations are not all the same. And they don't always come in the same wave of intensity. But you need to deny self. You need to take up your cross. Don't give in. Carry what Christ has given you to carry. 
and do it in faith, believing that what Christ has given you to carry, he will use for his glory. And as we deny ourselves and as we take up the cross that God has given us to carry, it actually is us loving God and us loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to deny ourselves each day. We need to take up our cross every day. And we need to follow Christ. And that's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And he said unto them, if any man will come after me, and I might say it this way, if you're going to love the way Christ loves, if you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ the way God loves us, he says this, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How many of us like suffering? No. And I tell, I'll tell you this, when I, when I watch you as God's people, and I see you going through life and the different challenges and struggles and the weaknesses you have, and then how God fortifies those weaknesses and supplies grace for your every need, and you keep walking and you keep following him day after day after day, you know that it's a way that you love me. And you encourage me, and you strengthen me as I watch you follow Christ. Songwriter wrote, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? He says, no, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. There needs to be sacrifice. Secondly, there needs to be intimacy. We're talking about the elements of this sort of love. Jesus has commanded his disciples, love ye one another as I have loved you. Well, what? What are the elements of that love? Well, there's sacrifice. There's also intimacy. When I say intimacy from the passage, intimacy would include friendship with God, being a friend of God. It would include obeying him, being obedient to him and knowing his word, knowing his plan, knowing what he's doing by his word. Look at verses 14 and 15 in our passage. He says this, ye are my friends. If ye do whatsoever I command you, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, what his master doeth. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my father I have made known unto you. Friendship. Friendship. God wants to be your friend. Do you have friend? Do you have a friend? You know, I think we have a lot of acquaintances in life. I think. Most of us have very few friends. I mean close, intimate friends. Friends who know you so well. They know basically everything about you. They know your weaknesses and your strengths. They know your pattern in life. And yet they love you anyway. It's good to have a friend like that. You are blessed to have more than one of those friends. You are blessed indeed. But you know that God wants to be your friend. And this friendship with Christ goes in both directions, I should say, because God is always faithful. He is a faithful friend. He is a dependable friend. But we are not always faithful friends to him. A friendship has two sides. Do you understand? Do you agree with that? Don't you? He wants to be our friend. He is our friend. He is faithful, never to leave us nor forsake us. And I might ask us the question this morning, what kind of friends are we to God? Now, the beauty of this passage is Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying, I'm not calling you servants anymore in that sense. I'm not talking to you. I'm not addressing you as slaves is what he's saying. 
I'm addressing you as a friend. I'm confiding in you. I love you. I'm not going to leave you. and, And though I'm going to the cross for you, I'm sending you my comforter and I'm coming again. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. So there's this wonderful friendship from God to us, his believers. But what kind of friends are we to God? I'm reminded of Peter and James and John later this evening in John chapter 15, later uh, on in this passage, before he's betrayed with a kiss, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. He's alone. He's alone. The friend of sinners is alone. And he's praying and he's burdened. And he's so burdened knowing what's going to happen the very next day that he is going to become the sin for the whole world. Jesus, his body is beginning to break down, so to speak. And he is, the Bible says, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. His physical body was being overwhelmed by the facts that he was going to have to face and what he was going to have to go through becoming our sin. And where were his friends? The Bible tells us they were asleep. Peter and James and John and others were sleeping. And Jesus comes to them and wakes them up and says, can't you pray with me? Can't you stay with me? I need you to be with me in this. I need you to be praying with me in this. Jesus was asking his friends to be his friend. And they went back to sleep. And they left him to agonize alone. I mentioned it already. How Peter, the one whom Jesus befriended, denied him. I don't know the man. Cursed, and he I don't know him. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't. Not much of a friend that night was Peter, do you think? How about you and me? What kind of friends are we to the Lord? You know, anyone can be Jesus' friend, according to verse 14. But obedience is a part of this intimacy that God wants with us. All that's necessary to to be his friend is to do what he says. Look again at verse number 14. Hear, my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. I don't want to minimize that statement. It's very important. And we'll talk about it a little bit, but I think I remember a girl on the playground in sixth grade. When I didn't do what she wanted me to do, she said, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. Maybe your mind was reminded of something like that. Jesus is contrasting the words friends, and the word friend here is the Greek word for a friend at court, or the friend of a king, or the friend of an emperor is the idea. The close, intimate friends of an emperor. Not everybody has access to him. In fact, most people don't. Most people will never be able to talk to him, but you are the chosen friends of the king, is the idea. And he's contrasting this idea of friends with servants or slaves. And the word friend that Jesus uses here describes this inner circle. In John 3 and verse 29, it refers to a best man in a wedding. And the friend of the king would be close to him. He would know his most intimate secrets and they would, but they would also, a friend of the king would also be his subject. Do we understand that? The friend of the king would also be under him to do his will, to obey him, to carry out his commands. I think an illustration for this is found in the book of Genesis. In fact, turn there with me, Genesis chapter 18. 
Look all the way back to Genesis. I'll give you an illustration for this idea. How can we be servants of, of Christ, but also be his friends? The Bible calls Abraham a servant of God, but the Bible also calls Abraham a friend of God. How is this possible? And I think we see it in Genesis chapter 18, and I'll begin reading in verse number 1. I'll read down through verse 8. Now, Abram here is old, older, almost 100, and his wife, they're older, and God is about to tell them, you're going to have a baby. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And if you were near 100 and God told you you were having a baby, maybe you'd respond the same way. In Genesis 18 and verse 1, I notice down through verse 8, I, I see Abraham as the servant of God. Look at verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared unto, Abra- uh, unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he, uh, speaking about Abram, lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. We see him as a servant here of the Lord and the angels that are with the Lord, verse 3, and he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. He calls himself a servant. Yet a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I, he had other servants who could have done this, but he says, And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, so do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened. He's obeying here. He's a servant of God. He hastened under the tent unto Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran. He's doing the will of God, running under the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man. And he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had dressed and set it before them. I wouldn't call this fast food, but it was fast. Abram was moving quickly. He set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. Now, in that those eight verses, you find Abram, you see him very clearly as a servant of the Lord. He's running. He's hasting to do the will of God. But later on, down in verse number 16, we find that God is communing with Abram. And he's actually sharing with Abraham secrets, truth. He's sharing, God is sharing his heart, in fact, with Abraham. Look at verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Do you hide from your friend, or do you tell them what you're doing? God, looking at Abraham as a friend, Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I'll stop there. But you see in verse the first eight verses you find in, in Genesis 18, you find Abraham serving. He's doing the will. He's obedient. He's a servant. But later on, you find him and you see him communing with God. And God, the Bible tells us, God considered Abraham to be his friend. Now look back to John 15 as we think about this idea of intimacy. Because obedience is necessary. Doing what he says is necessary. And he tells us that in verse 14. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Are there things in your life, that, are there areas of your life where you're not obeying what God is, 
is leading you to do. Maybe in the area of your finances, maybe in the area of your time. You see, he, God, wants to be your friend. The real question is only, do you want to be his? He's been commanding you. He's been leading you. He's saying this is, he's been convicting you in your heart because he loves you. He knows you. He's saying this is not right. This is what you ought to do. Are you obeying him? You see, intimacy is a part of this kind of love that we're commanded to partake in. So this was the relationship Jesus was describing when he calls his disciples friends, a relationship of love for both him and for each other. You know, true, true friends of a king wouldn't compete with one another for promotion. True friends of a king wouldn't compete with one another for attention or be out to accomplish their own personal agenda. Well, we are friends of God. We're part of the inner circle of Jesus Christ, not to promote ourselves, but to serve our king. And the friends of the world, though, pursue their own agendas and they quarrel amongst themselves. James talks about that, I believe, in chapter 4. Uh, the book of James, he speaks about this. Friends of the world. He says in verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Why are you quarreling and arguing? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust, ye, you're, you're coveting, and, and you don't have what you want, ye kill. You're, envy, you're full of envy and hate, and you desire to have, and you cannot obtain, ye fight and war. Yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss. You're asking improperly that ye may consume it upon your lusts. It's all about you. Then he says this, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity or reason for hostility with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy. The simple truth is this, God, if you're a child of his, he wants to be your friend. He is your friend. He is the best friend that you and I will ever have. The only question is, what kind of a friend am I to him? Am I an obedient friend? Am I doing his will? He's brought me into his, his he's brought me in close to him. He's telling me his will. Am I obeying him? Am I yielding to him? Would you consider yourself to have an intimate relationship with God? Would you consider yourself to be close to God? It's, it's been said that you, can, you, you are as close to God as you want to be. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you, James says. Some of us feel very far away from God because we are stubbornly refusing what he wants to do. We are insisting and we are persisting in our own way. And he's saying, I'm not going with you down that path of disobedience. He is God. He does not sin. He does not participate in sin. But we in our flesh say, but I want that. I have to have that. I won't be happy if I don't have that. The Bible says in James 4, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. How do we do that? Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning 
and your joy to heaviness. Oh, Trinity Baptist Church, God is our friend. We ought to be close to his throne. We ought to be listening to his word. Look at the end of verse number 15. He says, for all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. We ought to obey him. We ought to be his friend. We ought to listen to what he's saying. We ought to enjoy the intimacy that comes from those three realities of being a friend of God, obeying him, listening to what he's saying. Are we that kind of a friend? I can't help but notice, and I'll just notice it briefly, that the elements of Christ's love are sacrifice and intimacy, and also I notice initiative. Christ took the initiative. Look at verse number 16, the beginning part. He says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now, he's going to talk specifically about them being apostles is the context. First John 1 John 1.9 says, we love him because he first loved us. You know, the third element of Christ's love is initiative. Jesus hadn't waited for these men to appreciate him. Jesus hadn't waited for these men to invite them into or invite him into their lives. Jesus chose them and he chose them for a very specific purpose. And the truth is that God chose us, too. He's chosen us for very specific purposes within the body of Christ. You know, the Lord wanted them to know that he had made he had made the first move. I can't help but noticing that here. He looks at these men and they're they're completely disheveled and confused and uh, frustrated and a bit annoyed, I think. And uh, the focus is not there. And he looks at them. He says, I chose you. You didn't chose. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I'm telling you to abide. But know this. I chose you. I picked you. I know who you are. I know your weaknesses. I know your strengths. I know that without me, you can't do a thing. But I picked you anyway. No, God was the one who had sought out these these men as disciples. Jesus knew all about them, but he didn't choose them because they were rich or famous or clever or influential or educated or of high social standing. That's how he chose them. You know, normally in those days, students would choose their own rabbis, but not in this case. God chose them. God engineered the background events of their lives so that they were brought within the sphere of his influence at this specific time in human history. And then with purpose, God chose these men. And amazingly, he chose to be, he chose them as friends. He could have chosen anyone he wanted from the millions that are in the world, but he chose them. And God has chosen us. And all we have and all of us who have responded to his love He has chosen us, and he has a purpose for us to serve him. Notice verse number 16, the latter part, and I notice the last element of Christ's love is fruitfulness. Look at verse 16, the latter part, he says this, the middle part. He says that he'd chosen them and ordained you, he says, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Fruit. Verse 2, more fruit, he says in verse 2, chapter 15. Much fruit, he says in verse 5. You know, it's often from the lives of those who suffer the most that there comes the most fruit. Are you suffering? 
God makes no mistakes. And when men disobey him, like Judas disobeyed him, God used it for his glory. When Pilate was foolish and gave in to the crowd, God used it. It's often from the lives of those who suffer the most that there comes the greatest fruit. Jesus' love for his disciples was the secret to their fruitfulness, their effectiveness. They were not effective, and they would be, but they were not effective because of their talent or because of their fame or their abilities or their disciplines or their bravery or their knowledge. They were effective because they continued in the love of Christ. And that's what he was telling them. You're going to have to continue. I know you don't feel like continuing. I know you're tired right now. I know you're weary. I know you're confused. I know you can't understand under everything that, that's going on in your life. And you don't understand all of my purpose. But know this. Abide in me. And I'm going to abide in you. And you're going to produce much fruit. God made them, these men, convincing witnesses. And we know that Jesus was speaking to his 11 apostles. And it was a divine appointment. It says in verse 16, the middle part, he said that he ordained you. He had ordained them that they should go and bring forth fruit. He appointed them for a, spe a specific purpose, a specific position even as apostles. You know, the day of Pentecost was not far away in the birth of the New Testament church. And yet God had chosen, specifically chosen these 11 men, ordained them to occupy a very unique position as apostles. Once for all, a once for all role within the church. You know, some of the apostles would become famous, but others, I dare say, most of us in this room couldn't even name them. But they bore much fruit. All of them were appointed, whether they were famous or not. In the same way, God still appoints his servants, great and small, to the place which he has chosen for them within his church. And you know this, Satan cannot uproot God's vine. And Satan cannot destroy the fruit of that vine. The apostles were to go and bring forth fruit, and they did. And their faith, as they, as they went, their faith grew in abundance, and they grew in prayer, and they grew in Christ-likeness. These men who had been selfish became selfless. These men who were thinking about themselves became giving. These men who didn't know how to love became loving. These men who struggled became holy and pure and gracious and merciful. God produced much fruit in them. You know what? God's doing that in you and me as well. Rejoice in his fruit. Rejoice in his fruit. On the day of Pentecost, a fisherman named Peter he didn't have his doctorate degree, preached, and 3,000 were saved and baptized. And some years later, God took Peter to a city, Caesarea, to reach a Gentile and to fling open the door to salvation to the entire Gentile world. The man, the very man who had denied Jesus Christ, God used him powerfully. And Jesus is saying, abide in me and love like I love. And the only way you can ever love the way Christ loves and has loved us and continues to love us is by abiding and continuing in him. And that means continue when you don't feel like it and continue when you want to turn back and continue when you want to throw in the towel. Continue in him. Abide in him. In verse 16, the latter part, he talks about prayer. He gives this divine invitation. The beginning part, he says, I have chosen you. At the end of verse 16, he says that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, 
he may give it you. You know, Jesus invites all of us who will follow him to boldly enter into his throne room, the throne room of God, and to present our petitions with assurance that we will receive what we're asking for. He says, in my name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? We do it. Thank you for the food. And in Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to pray? Well, it means to ask. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, I'll say it this way and quickly. We cannot attach the name of Jesus to selfish requests. We cannot attach the selfless name of Jesus to selfish requests. God, do for me what I want in my life. And then attach in Jesus' name. Doesn't go. Doesn't go. We can't attach Jesus' name to, to, to please and request that would be contrary to his nature, things that are unholy, things that are against him. Look at verse 17. And I notice that the friends of the king must not only love him, but also one another. In verse 17, he says, these things I command you. Be sacrificial, be intimate, take the initiative as I have. Be fruitful as you abide in me. These things I command you that ye love one another. What joy it must bring to God's heart when he sees his friends loving one another and working together to obey his commands. Church, you can take this whole building away. You can take every bit of organization away, the pulpit and the chairs and the platform and choir loft, programs, you can take it all away. And you could still... God could still have a glorious church that is pleasing him. That God looks at and what he sees is he sees brothers, his friends, being friends of one another. Sacrificing for one another. Being intimate with one another. Knowing one another, confiding in one another, praying for one another, forgiving one another taking initiative to love one another, bearing fruit together, and he would be well pleased. He would be pleased. Abide in me, he says. Are you close to him? You know, on a bicycle wheel, you have the tire and you have the rim and you have spokes and you have the hub, right? And as the Spokes get further away from the hub, they get further apart. And as they get closer to the hub, they get closer together. And you know, just as those bicycle spokes get closer together, so too as we get closer to our Savior, we abide in him, we get closer to one another. And as we get further away from our Savior, we love ourselves more, love him less, we get further away from our brothers and our sisters in Christ. The friends of Christ should be our closest friends. They really should. So I'll end with this question. Are you close to him? I want you to take your hymnals. I want you to turn to hymn number 502. 502. We're going to sing uh, all three verses. All three verses.